Hello and welcome to the first episode of Cannon Fodder, colon, Daniel Corky and the Classics. This is a new podcast from the team that brought you, oh, such hits as, I don't know, Dare Daniel podcast, pause for applause. I'm film critic Daniel Barnes, and with me is my good friend and fellow cinephile, you might know him as a comedian. You might know him as a comedy um, a, a gadfly. You might know him as a wizened rock tour. I call the man a comedy legend. His name's Corky McDonald. Hey, everyone. If you are coming to us from the Dare Daniel podcast, this show is sort of the bizarro version of that show. Instead of getting tortured with the most unwatchable movies that you can imagine. We'll be watching and or re-watching some of the most brilliant, accomplished, and inspiring movies ever made in the entire history of cinema. Every episode, we'll review one random selection from the most recent Sight & Sound Critics Poll. Now, if you're unfamiliar with it, Sight & Sound is a magazine published by the British Film Institute that has been conducting polls of film critics, programmers, curators, archivists, and academics from around the world every 10 years to compile the list of the best films ever made. And after we review the film, we'll decide if we think the film was a sound selection for the canon or if we thought it was a little slight. And if we did find it lacking, we'll select a slighted movie that didn't make the sight and sound list that we would put in its place. And at the end of each show, we'll randomly select the movie that we'll review on our next episode so you have two weeks to watch and listen along at home. On this first episode, we are coming out the gate Guns a blazing, or I guess swords a swinging. <laughs> We're reviewing the great Toshiro Mifune in a Kurosawa's iconic 1950 movie, Rashomon. Or are we? There are a few different takes floating around out there. Come on, Mama. Japan will be fun. You like Rashomon? That's not how I remember it. Yes, our first film, it's Rashomon, directed by the great Akira Kurosawa. It's based on the short stories In a Grove. It's like a Nirvana outtake. (laughs) And Rashomon by Ryonosuke Akutagawa, with a screenplay by Kurosawa and Shinobu Hashimoto. I apologize for all of the terrible pronunciations that are coming out of my mouth right now. Stars frequent Kurosawa collaborator Toshiro Mifune, and co-stars Michiko Kyo, Masayuki Mori, Takashi Shimura, and Minori Chiaka. Rashomon is, of course, Japanese for Rashomon, first mystery solved. Kurosawa was uh, well-known within Japan film circles by the time he directed this. It's it's described as his breakthrough, and it, it, it certainly was. It was a breakthrough for Japanese cinema in general. But it was his 12th feature film. He'd already made Drunken Angel. He'd already made Stray Dog. He'd made some notable movies. But the world as a whole was still largely ignorant of, of Japanese culture in general and certainly unaware of the rich legacy of filmmaking in Japan, especially in the years before World War II. Rashomon, however, did pretty good at the Japanese box office. Came out in August 1950. Japanese film critics, not so hot. And with little to no overseas market for Japanese films at the time. Seems like that was that Clap your hands, nice little modest domestic hit, not going to win any awards. Greener pastures ahead for all involved moving on. And that probably would be the case if not for an Italian businesswoman, Italy and Japan, back together. (laughs) Reunited because it feels so 
good. Um, Giolani Stremioli. She recommended the film to an Italian film agency that was looking for a Japanese film to screen at the 1951 Venice Film Festival. Rashomon was submitted to the festival over the objections of Daiye, the company that produced the movie. <laughs> what it did the festival that's like how unwanted this movie and but not only was it screened at venice it won the golden lion that's the highest award and that changed everything this was still a time when film culture was so young that a single movie could come out of nowhere and irreparably and immediately change the game just change it forever kurosawa his career took off akiru which is also on the sight and sound top 250 Seven Samurai, even higher on the Sight and Sound Top 250. That came in 1954. And Japanese cinema, just in general, just went off. Today, Rashomon is kind of best known for its unique story structure, this narrative structure in which we get these four different perspectives of the same event, this violent encounter in the woods between three people. And it's probably the most notable example of like an unreliable narrator on film. Uh, and this this central idea of differing perspectives of the same event, it's been recycled in popular culture over and over and over again. The Rashomon itself, it's been remade several times, either officially or unofficially, most notably as the 1964 Western The Outrage, featuring Paul Newman in the role he was born to never play, that of a cackling Mexican bandito. No, not that. <laughs> uh, other similar versions, but not official remakes, include Courage Under Fire, the film with uh, Meg Ryan and Denzel Washington, uh, Vantage Point from the 2000s, and most recently, The Last Duel with uh, Adam Driver and Matt Damon. That film also feel, features a duel and a rape in question, much uh, as Rush, that's the central uh, conceit of Rashman. On TV, it was a huge, huge uh, gimmick. Uh, the Odd Couple, Star Trek, The Next Generation, Frasier. Here's a movie that a lot of people might think like, oh, I've seen this, or maybe I don't need to see this because it's been remade, recycled, rehashed so many times. It's one of those things that is just like, it, like it's part of our collective like consciousness, even if you don't really know Rashman or haven't seen Rashman. You, you might think you've seen it or might think you don't need to see it. So Corky, get in here. Get in here on this. Rashomon. Do you need to see it? Is it something that uh, it's it's been done to death and this movie is no longer necessary? Or is this like still a very vital part of the canon? And is it more than just important? Because important, I think, is a word that I kind of hate. Because important movies are often quite terrible. <laughs> is it also relevant, but also still just very an, an entertaining and engaging movie? This movie is based upon a short story called In the Grove and then slightly a little bit of another one called Rashomon, but there's no In the Grove effect. There's the Rashomon effect, <laughs> right? Right, And that's how important and available sure. it has become. But I think it only got that way, or I think it definitely got that way because of the unique, uniqueness of it, but also because of just how expertly, I mean, technically, proficiently, expertly it was put together. There... It's a movie from 70 years ago, and it's not boring yeah. in the slightest. It's it's almost more silent movie than vocal movie. Yeah. And it's it's almost more impactful as a silent movie. The action, the, the setting, the cinematography by uh, Miyagawa. Miyagawa. It's, it's amazing. Uh, 
the one big overarching theme that I take out of this story of, and like you say, it's four different versions of, of events that happen. And it's even more of a mind fuck than that. It's mm-hmm. one version of three different versions with another version added. Cause you only have one narrator to the three stories that pull. We, we're not getting those three stories told to us. We're getting that the, them being told by a narrator to another uh, character in the movie, which yeah. is kind of fascinating because you never know the whole truth. And I'm reminded of um, a true crime doc I watched recently, and it was um, about the Phil Spector murder. Hmm. He murdered that poor actress in his mansion. And the guy was describing it. He was the defense or the prosecuting attorney, and he was describing it. He's like, we know certain events up to when they get inside the house and then there's a fog and then the only one who emerges from that fog is phil specter and he tells his story and the police officers and the crime scene detectives they have to sift together sift through what is remains of that fog and put together the story and that's kind of exactly what in the grove rashomon does it creates a fog in this setting it's the forest the yeah. forest is this <laughs> it's this place where you can't discern the truth. Yeah. It, you can't see I mean, literally there's another saying you can't see the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. The play of sunlight, of light being the true arbiter of truth in this movie is so good because it's it trickles through the forest and everything that happens in the forest you just have to take for granted that you're getting the truth from it. It's everybody's story. When they go to testify, it's stark. It's head on one shot, looking straight at right. them. There's a directly sp- to us, directly. Direct, and there's yeah, you don't hear from the the court. They're talking to us, the audience. Yeah, absolutely. A strip of sunlight is above them, so they're telling the truth as they want it known. It may not be the true story, and probably isn't. In fact, can't be because several stories conflict. But it's the truth that they want to know. And it's usually when anybody's testifying, it's their best versions of themselves, which is what they want to know. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent points all. Um, What we know is that there was just there was an encounter in the woods. We know that. Right. We know that there was a man and his wife, we're, we're assuming, and a bandit played by Toshiro Mifune. We know that the woman was raped, and we know that the man was killed. Beyond that, the details, the motives, everything is in a haze. And as you said, like it's in the forest. Yeah. It's in the haze of the forest where you are both in the sunlight and in the shadows at all times, and it's never in the same ratio or proportion from moment to moment. That's the perfect visual metaphor for this film where like, Truth is ever evolving. Yeah. True. Uh, Robert Altman. There's a on the Criterion uh, Criterion uh, streaming service. Uh, there's an interview with Robert Altman where he talks about this movie. And he's he his thought is every story is true and every story is completely not true. Right. Mm. Like we hear four different versions of it. We hear first the bandits version. We hear the woman's version. We hear the man's version. This is the man who, the, the man who's died. This is the inciting event of the film. Is the discovery of this body, seemingly the discovery of this body, although that's undermined yeah. later. 
we hear from him from beyond the grave, uh, and then we finally hear the fourth story, which is the seemingly the most objective story of them all, and it's probably the closest to the truth. But even in that story, there's a big hole. Yeah. There's big holes. Yeah. It contradicts things that we've seen earlier. What happened to the dagger, yeah. right? Everyone has something to hide. And I think that fourth story especially is the one that like takes it back to us as the audience because we're really the ultimate passive oh. observer. We've seen and heard every take on this. We have been receiving this testimony mm -hmm. straight to camera, and yet the movie kind of presaging like rear window, I think, in a way, implicates us as the audience and, and says, you know, what do we have to hide? Like, you know, what part of us can't, there's something that we can't leave the forest with people knowing it. The forest is a place where anything can happen. Right. And but there's things we, we can't take out of the forest or we can't let people who knew about it come out of the forest to civilization and let people know about it. The forest is a wild place. Yes. The forest is a wild place. Kurosawa takes us via this woodcutter following him as he goes treks mm -hmm. and he's doing every shot imaginable from under as that's he, amazing. yeah, it's, that's when I knew I was into this movie when I was just like, I'm, I can watch this guy walk for like five hours. This is just amazing. Like <laughs> I'm wondering how he's walking. getting these treetop shots in 1950. It's just, it's so good. It's But he gets farther and farther into this, this unknowable atmosphere. It reminds me also of one of my favorite movies ever, Fargo. At the end, when she's saying it's a lovely day and they show this vista and it's mm -hmm. the prairies of North Dakota or Minnesota. And you can't discern the, the snow from the sky. And it's just like they're driving into that snowy mist. And it's like you don't know the full story. She's never going to know the full story. Nobody will never know. We don't know why Jerry Lundegaard uh owed that money at the beginning we just know he he's going to do anything he can to get that money right it's like this once you're in the forest we don't know and again i really want to harken because it really mind fucked me that the woodcutter it's not just unreliable narrators in the forest of the stories we don't know if what they're saying at the testimony is true yeah we don't know if that the way he's relating it to the vagabond who comes and, and shelters from the rain is honest the temple or the gate that they're at the rashomon that they're at half of it fully constructed half of it decrepit broke mm -hmm. it's the lies we tell ourselves it's the truths we accept about ourselves right it's both it's yeah yeah let's talk a little about that kind of framing device of the movie so we really kind of start with this apocalyptic rain yeah right um and there's definitely something there in in this being. I mean, this is 1950. This is five years removed from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yes. And this portrait, uh, e even though the short stories, you know, well predate World War II, they're from the 1920s. There's something about this apocalyptic rain. These this people who are just beset by tragedy after tragedy. A temple that is in ruins, people who have nothing and who are who are scrambling just to live. That it really is like very evocative in a way, and I think was very powerful when it would was presented mm -hmm. um, at, at Venice as like, holy shit, you know, yeah. like apparently in the early days of the American occupation um, of Japan, 
filmmakers were forbidden from making stories about this era, really from making stories about like, you know, their own traditions and their own cultures and things like that. So this was part of a, a, a really big statement of, of kind of Japanese identity on Kurosawa's part, but it was also really, I think, about, um, you know, how difficult it was for the people um, at that time. But yeah, we have this framing device of these um, men who are at this temple. It's raining fucking balls, and they're recounting the story. The first words of the film, I don't understand. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, like right away, we're we're in the weeds, right fucking away, man. Okay, so this this film Rashman, it really it does present this mystery of who who killed the man. Who who is responsible? You know wh- what happened in the forest, and we get all these different takes. We get again the bandit's take first. We get the woman's take. We get the man's take, and then finally we get the take of an observer who has been actually relating all of these different takes to us the entire time. What I thought was really interesting, though, watching it this time, what I realized is that in every single version all three of the the versions we hear of the people who are involved in this encounter in the forest they all implicate themselves mm. in his death the bandit says that he killed him in a duel yeah that was uh the bandit story is that very self-serving yes he went to rape the woman oh absolutely everybody's story is very self-serving right yeah. everybody's story that's what the whole thing is like this whole thing is about like people trying to preserve some version of themselves. Even from beyond right? the grave. Even from beyond the grave. Even someone who doesn't even have skin in the fucking game yeah. will still do it, as we find out in the fourth story. Uh, but yeah, the first story is that she she submitted to yeah. him. Because, of course, he's just, he's just her fucking Mafuni motherfucker, right? Um and that he killed the man in a duel that was instigated by her. The woman's story is that she killed her husband because she was raped and she was dishonored. She was dishonored, and his contemptuous glare yeah. kind of overcame her in a kind of a, a psychological panic, right? That's her story. Leaving out the whole instigating the duel part, right? The man's story, the third story is, again, it's told through a medium you know, by by the dead man in a creepy fucking yes. voice. And some really, like, gets really intense. Lots of wind. Uh, wind is ominous. Big wind. Big wind. Rain, big rain, big wind, big sun. This movie goes big, baby. Um, but yes, in this version, he takes pieces from the bandit story and that he, she kind she was raped and kind of, but then she did tell him to kill him. But basically it ends with him committing suicide. He, okay, he, again, his story implicates himself. Every single version of the story is that they committed the murder. And yet somehow they're all subtly shifting blame. They're all subtly shifting the motives. They're all subtly shifting it to preserve some kind of a version of themselves that again, they cannot let leave the forest. Right. Um, and the third, I think is my favorite shot, uh, in, in the film. This is an absolutely gorgeous, um, sequence where it's the suicide and it begins in this very long shot of the man kind of stumbling around in the Well, He finds a, a sword. It almost kind of calls out to him, you know, like Hamlet, uh, he 
picks it up and he's stumbling around and it's this kind of long shot of him in the forest and he makes this very exaggerated motion to commit Harry Curie and it cuts as he stabs himself to the medium who is like falls in this very just beautiful sort of almost slow motion sort of way and again it's like these contrasts that keep coming up of like light and dark rain and sun like beauty and horror and this is like it's death in the most ridiculous absurd pathetic sort of a way of this guy kind of cuckolded man just like doing it to and and relegating himself to like the wrong part of the spirit world by doing this yet and at the same time this absolutely beautiful beautiful moment of uh, like making it transcendent making it beautiful it's um that's this entire movie is those like fantastic contrasts those like slippery meanings um it's it's a pretty amazing film one of my just indelible moments um is the second story the, the woman's story and i i'm sorry i don't know the actress's name but she's fantastic in this movie she turns in probably my favorite performance and machiko kio machiko kio okay great job she's stunning amazing stunning so good with so much to do the whole sequence is great the music builds and her story doesn't involve the rape it starts from after mm-hmm. so the rape is just always accepted yeah. we only get one version of that and that's from Tashira Mafumi. it's just always accepted and she wanted no part of it and tried and Tashira Mafumi runs away she frees her husband but he is, looks at her with contempt and now she has to go through this whole just being wrecked she's just been violated in a horrendous way and now her husband is seemingly just has nothing but contempt for her. The camera swings back and forth as her emotions go up and down. And she's decided, I want to die. I want to die. Mm. I want you to, I just don't want you to look at me like that anymore. That's even almost worse than what just happened. And while she's testifying to this, she's in the supplicant position on her knees. You know, you've got the woodcutter and the holy man watching from behind. That's the only way you see these people testify. It cuts back after she talks about how she holds the knife up and walks towards him and passes out. She she never details mm. the horrible parts. It's always just about yeah. like her emotional range. When it cuts back to her, she's now relaxed. She's sitting back on and holding mm-hmm. propping herself up almost in a, like a reclining position. Very much like I've got all this off me now. And almost a mm. tad seductress. Like she's trying to get them to buy her yeah. story, right? It's amazing. It's small. It's subtle. She's doing a whole. But it's such a cut. It's such a vast difference from how we have only seen her this entire movie. It's the the subtle shades in the performances are fantastic, and Tashira Mifune is one who his work here sometimes gets a little disregarded. Even Altman and his thing was kind of like, yeah, he's kind of going over the top, <laughs> and he is. I mean, there's he's going big, yeah. right? But at the same time, as as we find out, that performance is a performance. Yeah, yeah, right. What when we get to the fourth story, like it's he he's not leaping around no. and cackling and and he he's 
It's actually she's the one who is is cackling yeah. <laughs> in this version, right? This is the version that we get from the the woodcutter, who is the man who supposedly discovered the body, but later we find out he is saw more than he Did initially you? lets on. All right, so there's a fight between Tashir from Mufuni's bandit character and the noble in the first one and in the fourth story. Those are the only yeah. times we see the fight. And in the first yeah. one, it's this valiant fight, you know, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., right? It's Oh, yeah. It's just swords and bouncing around. The last time, it's clumsy as shit. They're, they're just flailing at each other. They are throwing mud at each other. They are scrambling. They're out of breath. The thing yeah, that it's so much different. I clocked that I loved. It, I mean, there's so much you could go into depth in the, on this, but the thing I clocked and mm. I went back and rewatched it is in the first story when it's the bandit telling it, he's, you're, he throws the sword at the camera. The camera, the point of view yeah. is from the dead man, the dying man, the murdered man. At the when he throws the camera in the last story, it's from over above, like being watched. We never see where the woodcutter is watching from, but we get his point of mm-hmm. view, and it's like might be the most honest because the bandit is telling the story, and he if if we're to believe if 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 what we see is what we're supposed to believe, he's telling the story of what that dead man saw. How could he tell that story? The last story we see it from the point of view of someone who would be actually watching from above, hidden in the in the forest. Right? It's pretty amazing. And the it's brilliance small. of this movie really is that it doesn't feel gimmicky, like so many of the films that remade it or borrowed from it, uh, or the TV shows that really did use it as a gimmick. It doesn't feel like it, it's not J.J. Abrams, you know? Like it, it's not like it's not so overthought out in terms of like plot details. It's really thought out in terms of like the themes and the characters and the ideas yeah. and things like that. Um, yeah. Key acts are constantly like either alighted or left completely off screen. And you can say like, Oh, well, yeah, they weren't going to show this or that in the, but well, you know, Pretty heavy they subject, wish, like there's more that's left off screen that is necessary to leave off screen. And it's really about like, kind of keeping those key things like away. What do we see? Like what what are the parameters of the story? Like you said, like where her story starts is very different from where the bandit story starts, where the man's story starts, or where even the woodcutter's story starts. Like they all kind of start in these different places. And you talked about um the cinematographer Kazuha Mayakawa. Mayakawa. Um who was a heavyweight. I mean this dude was a heavyweight. Uh, he worked with Maizaguchi, he worked with Ozu, Shinoda, all the Japanese heavyweights, Ichikawa. He shot one of the Lone Wolf and Cub films. Oh, I love he those. shot several of the Zatoichi films. The man knew his way around a camera. Uh, in other words, and in this, apparently there was a very groundbreaking use of mirrors here to create the shadows uh, dappling off of, of people's faces. They did shoot this in an actual forest. Sure. I mean, it's obviously. That, and that reminds my me God. of water plays a big aspect in this movie mm. too. Anytime something very, um, I would say deleterious happens for these characters, it's by water. She goes to kill herself by water. He, the story starts or he gets captured by his story. They drink some water, uh, foul water that gave him diarrhea and he goes and sits in the thing, right? Um, water is big, but there's a shot where the bandit is looking at the noble woman <laughs> bathing a little bit, playing in the water kind of thing. And it looks heavenly is the best word I could describe it. In a black and white mm. film, it looks heavenly. Just, and I, I'm assuming that's the mirrors 
reflecting the sunlight in places that you wouldn't normally, yeah. or at, at intensity that you wouldn't normally see in the forest. Pretty amazing. Exactly. Yeah. Another thing. No, it, it's really beautiful, and not just beautiful, but it it, it underlines the key themes uh, of the film as well, right? Like this being in the light, being in the dark, not knowing where you are at any single moment, the light being kind of alive. Um, I also love the subconscious aspects of you pulling you into this movie because people run at the beginning, run from off camera, mm -hmm. through the camera onto the uh, gate temple area. At the end of the movie, they come off into the, uh, the camera. It's like, okay, audience, I'm pulling you in. I'm letting you go. You you're taking this with you. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> Absolutely. No, uh, Kurosawa, certainly a master. Kazuo Mayakawa, certainly a master. And apparently Kurosawa encouraged improvisation. Wow. From his DP, which is something very unusual. That's, that's a new Hollywood kind of thing to just be like, hey, man. Get out there, man, with your camera and just go nuts yeah. with it, man. <laughs> like, feel it, man. Uh, yeah, and there's just uh, the use of uh, deep focus. Uh, again, too, um, not not just gorgeous. And this movie is gorgeous. Yeah. It was restored in, in uh, 2008. And, I mean, every bead of sweat is just crystal freaking clear. I mean, this movie looks um, fantastic. But, again, the, the deep focus, much like in Citizen Kane, it's, it's not just there to be there to look cool. It's there to underline and, and kind of um, amplify I mean, there, the ideas of the film. This kind of a, this thing where it's like, yeah, what's in front of you and what's far away is in the same focus. That's yeah. There's a shot that is between the bandit's legs at his feet with the woman laying prostrate on the ground, crying, distraught, and the nobleman is in frame in between his legs. And every leaf of litter on the forest floor is visible. And it, it's just, that's, that's someone with a gift setting that up. You know what? You're mm -hmm. telling us so much in that one little shot. And it's just a cool looking shot. Let's put a, let's put a bow on okay. this uh, puppy here. Put it in a box. Poke some holes so it doesn't die. Sure. Put it under the tree. Uh, leave some kibble in there because, again, starvation. <laughs> and let's just give it as a gift to these people. So our rating system, again, we decide, was this sight and sound selection for the canon sound? Or was it a little slight? And if it was slight, what slighted movie, not in the Sight and Sound Top 250, would we put in its place Corky? I put the question to you. Sure. And I don't want four different versions mm. of your rating, okay? Right. I want one version, straightforward, no monkey shines, Rashomon for the canon. Sound or slight? Absolutely sound. Deserved, needs to be on there. Influenced decades of filmmakers. Film uh, agency hadn't gotten recommended or recommended it. Like it could have been lost. You know, it could have just been, would it have been as accepted and, 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 and recognized as wonderful because it didn't have the, 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 the cred to it? it? It would have just been, oh yeah, that's a cool movie. Go find that movie. You know, it would have always been regarded as good, but would have been regarded as great. Um, I gotta say it would, because no matter when you find this movie, like I did, 70 years after it was made, knowing all the story of it, I, it's still just, 
it's something to captivate you for 88 minutes that just fucking zoom by. You're in it immediately. And um, it's something that I've been thinking about since watching. Here, here. Um, put two down for sound and let's put this sucker in the cannon. Um, so fruitly, I, you know, uh, there's a lot of Kurosawa I still need to see. This is uh, the second time I've seen this film. Sounds like it was the first time for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, second time for me, um, loved it even more this time. I would probably still put Seven Samurai ahead of Rashomon, as did the Sight and Sound critics poll. Put it slightly ahead. Uh, Akiru and Ron were also in the top 250 for Kurosawa, so maybe we'll get to those eventually. So I definitely recommend, if you haven't seen Rashomon, give it a freaking look, man. And if you haven't seen it in a while, it's probably uh, due for another rewatch. Treat yourself. To Rashomon. It's available to stream on Max. It's available on Criterion Channel. If you have subscriptions there, it's available for free on Canopy and Plex. And you can find rent it on your various streaming services as well. Rashomon, it's 88 minutes of pure delight. Well, not delight <laughs> yeah. because it's pretty... It's dark <laughs> stuff, but... Uh, God damn, is it a great movie? And and again, like you, I've been thinking about it all week, and I was um, happy to think about it. It was um, goddamn rewarding, and it was fun talking about it with you, Corey. Yeah, you too, man. That's what we thought. But you tell us what you thought about Rashomon. We're going to have three different stories? I don't know. We'd love to hear your take. Contact us on Facebook. Contact us on Instagram. And find us at Dare Daniel Pod. Got our own website. Tell us what you thought about the movie. Corky, we've come to the end of this episode, our review of Rashomon, episode one. But what we'll be doing at the end of each episode is selecting the film we'll be reviewing on our next episode. So I've got a random number generator here. We're just going to pick it at random from our list on Letterboxd, our numbered list. Clicking the button, ka-ching! And the number is number 115. 115. What do you got for me? We're going to page two here. Number 115. The film is Limite. Uh-oh. Limite. I know nothing about this film. It is directed by Mario Peixoto. It is from the year 1931. And the critics, man, they went nuts for it. These uh, sight and sound critics... Uh, you tell me something about Limite, Quirky. I want to hear it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of this movie. <laughs> Limite, so. I've heard of like 132 of the 135 movies that I have on this letterbox list. And this is one of them I've never Sweet. heard of. But Quirky, it's, it's Limite. We're going in blind. It's, I'm going to read you a quick synopsis quick. of Limite. Adrift in the vast expanse of the ocean, a solitary boat carries three castaways, a man and two women. Stranded and devoid of any... I mean, I'm I'm in. Yeah. Let's just call it. I'm in. Sweet. Ex- vast expanse, three castaways, a man and two women. I mean, who... <laughs> I think I've seen this movie. Gotta love it. Times. 
You gotta love it. So that's all we have for you on this week's episode. Join us in two weeks when we'll be reviewing Limite by Mario Peixoto. And we'll find out what the fuck is Limite? <laughs> um, but if you're interested in playing along at home, the movie is available on the Criterion Channel uh, subscription service, which I highly recommend if you're a cinephile. It's uh, worth every penny. Um, I have no skin of the game. I get no money from Criterion Channel. Uh, but you can watch the film Limite. So uh, if you're interested in reviewing Limite with us, watch it. Tune in in two weeks, and uh, that'll happen. In the meantime, follow Dare Daniel Pod on Facebook and Instagram for updates on this show and upcoming episodes of the Dare Daniel Podcast. Like and rate us on your favorite podcast app, please. It helps us so much. If you're interested in donating to the show, go to daredaniel.com, find that donate button, or click support for the show. Now, for Cannon Fodder, pump ba bum I'm Porky McDonald. And I'm Daniel Barnes saying it's human to lie even to yourself. That's just one of the many inspiring messages from Rashomon. We'll see you in two weeks. Limite or unlimite. I don't know. Sans limite. Boosh, boosh, boosh. Cannon fodder. Boosh.